But our message today is entitled, Jesus Christ, Spiritual Israel's Great Judge. And it's from the book of Judges. The days of Joshua were good days. Um, Days filled with God's blessing. Days marked by Israel's obedience. And we see this outlined at numerous places, but the end of Joshua really sums this up best for us. The author says in chapter 24 of Joshua, verse 31, the author says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Now, what better statement could be could be made about a person or a group of people? And it's repeated again for us in Judges chapter 2, verse 7, after a very interesting confrontation with the person of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, as he is called, has come with a warning. He's come with a rebuke, not for what Israel has done, but for what they haven't done. Let's read the first few verses of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, when we first look at this passage of Scripture, the first thing we see is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I love this. You can't get around the straightforward Christology presented right here in this passage. If anyone ever tells you that the Old Testament is obsolete... Be assured they don't have an accurate view of the Old Testament. If any teacher stands before you and doesn't point you to Christ using the Old Testament, that teacher is not worth his salt. Christ is all through the pages of the Old Testament. Just last week, John Holder and I were reading through uh, the book of Acts together, and we came to Acts 28, verse 23, where Luke says that Romans were coming to Paul... At his lodging, which he paid for, which I thought was interesting, in great numbers. They were coming in great numbers. And listen to this. From morning till evening, Paul expounded the word to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, now most people honestly can't prove Christ from the gospels or the epistles. And here's Paul proving Christ, convincing people of Christ 
from the law, from the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch and the prophets. Because this is where the early church saw Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture here of Christ interacting with his people here in Judges 2. And we know that it's Jesus Christ because, as John says, no man has seen God the Father and lived. The angel of the Lord says in this passage, I brought you up from Egypt. Do you see that? The angel of the Lord said, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Speaking of his covenant that he made with Abraham way back in Genesis 12. This is Jesus Christ speaking to Israel right here. And I don't know about you, but I love stuff like this. I, I just got ecstatic when I saw it. Finding Jesus Christ in places like this. You know, and, and I thought, you know, it's kind of like when you go on a vacation and you see a friend, a good friend, a best friend on vacation somewhere really far away, you know, in an unusual place. You know, there's something endearing about that. Seeing Jesus right here in Judges chapter 2 of all places. Now notice how Jesus' words his rebuke to the people in chapter 2. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. Notice that this is a unilateral statement from him to his people. He's stating an unconditional promise here, a promise which he himself, the angel of the Lord, will fulfill in the future. And Paul clarifies this statement for us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, when he says, With a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Paul goes on to say, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So God gave this covenant. The angel of the Lord gave this covenant. He first and foremost, as Carlton said last week, gave it to who? Himself. And he's reminding the people, I will never break that covenant. And he didn't. He made it and he kept it. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know, it's a comforting thing to know that God's promises are not based on people's performance. If that were so, then Israel would not have known the salvation of the Lord. The book of Judges would have never been written. The people would have never been saved. And yet we see in the book of Judges, God graciously saving his people. There's a repeated theme in Judges, isn't there? Time after time, the people sin. And then God judges them through the wicked actions of surrounding nations. Then what do the people do? They cry out for deliverance. And then God saves them by raising up a judge for them. This is the constant pattern of the book of Judges. Repeated over and over throughout the book. God is merciful. God is patient. 
As Bruce Haynes said this morning in Bible study, he overflows with loving kindness. Judges is all about God's covenant faithfulness. His patience and mercy over and above the people's sin and rebellion. You know, we even see a faint picture of his mercy in the lives of the leaders, the Old Testament leaders that he raises up. The death of godly leaders is a familiar theme at the outset of Old Testament history books. Here in Judges, we see the book begin with the death of Joshua. Back in Exodus, we saw the death of Joseph. In the book of Joshua, we see the death of Moses. And in 1 Kings, we see the death of David. So we see God's covenant faithfulness even working itself out in this. In the fact that he's raising up godly leaders who act as types of Christ. Pointing people to Jesus Christ. These men foreshadowed the saving work of Jesus Christ. And yet, he's not dependent on one of them. Because after the death of each of them, God's work carries on. We also see in this theme of God's covenant faithfulness, God's intention to bring a king out of Judah. At several points in the book, we see God saying, let Judah go first. In fact, this statement brackets the beginning and the end of Judges. In the very first verse of Judges, the very first verse, the people ask the Lord, Who will go up for us to fight against the Canaanites? What did the Lord say? Judah shall go up. At the end of the book, chapter 20 and verse 18, when the people are called to make war against Benjamin, Once again, the people inquire of the Lord, who will go up for us first to fight against Benjamin? Once again, the Lord said, Judah will go up first. So God's promise, I will not break my covenant with you, I will never break my covenant with you, shines straight through statements like this. Like light piercing through the darkness because... Out of Judah will come a king, King David. And from King David, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, like Robbie spoke of in Philippians 2 this morning. He is resolved in his covenant faithfulness to bring a king out of Judah. His covenant with himself is binding. It is unilateral. His covenant with His people is binding. Therefore, those in Christ are secure. You know, this whole statement here that He begins with, as He begins His rebuke to the people, it's kind of like that parent preamble before the spanking, isn't it? That pre-punishment talk where the parent sits the kid down and they say, Now you know I love you. And nothing can ever change that. 
Nothing you could ever do could make me love you less. But, but, I'm going to have to confront the sin in you. It's kind of what this is like. So let me put you in remembrance of this. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. Don't take God's judgment, God's rebuke, God's chastisement as something evil for you. When he disciplines you, he's out to restore the relationship. He's not out to cause you harm. The Lord doesn't hate you. He loves you. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. He's a loving, faithful God. But even though his covenant is unilateral, God's people must still obey. As a believer, you're not allowed to say, well, I'm God's child. I'll go ahead and sin and ask for forgiveness tomorrow. We are not allowed to do that. That is not the response of a believing child. The people in Joshua's day did not fully obey the Lord. Now, they were a strong generation, probably probably the strongest, or at least one of the strongest. Probably the most obedient. And yet they didn't fully obey the Lord, and he's rebuking them for it. He says in chapter 2 and verse 2, that you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you haven't obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So what is Jesus talking about? What is the angel of the Lord talking about? It seems at first blush that he's being really hard on them. I mean, they've conquered the land. Isn't that what the book of Joshua is all about? Conquering the land. Dividing the land. But look at the specifics of this. Look back at the end of chapter 1. Because the author goes into great detail highlighting how the people compromised. How they partially obeyed. And as we're going to see, partial obedience was still disobedience in God's eyes. Look what the author says in verse 27. Of chapter 1. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon 
or Aleb, or Oxib, or Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. Now we've reached rock bottom. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, and in Shalbam. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. Now we see here that the further north Israel went geographically, the less they obeyed. By the time they reached Dan, the people inhabiting the land were pushing them back. They started strong in the south. They began faithfully. And the further north they went, the less inclined they were to obey. Now, reading all of this in context, you may be tempted to ask, well, really, honestly, what's the big deal? It may look to you at first blush like Israel had everything under control. They ruled over the inhabitants of the land. They had the Canaanites doing forced labor. It looks like they had everything under control, so why the fuss? Well, the issue here is that God didn't want the Israelites coexisting with the Canaanites. Simply subjecting them to forced labor was softening the command. God wanted them driven out. The issue here was that of syncretism, the blending of religions. God didn't want the people blending religions, serving other gods. And he knew that allowing the Canaanites to remain in the land, to simply coexist with them, would be detrimental to them. And if not to them, at least to their children. And as we're going to see, that's exactly what happened. Israel went from a generation that knew the Lord, was obedient to him, omitting this certain command... To a generation that didn't know him at all, committing outright sins of commission, of people actively pursuing other gods. The point was that God wanted Israel's undivided devotion, complete commitment. He knew that the temptation to intermarry and serve other gods would be too much to bear, so he called for radical commitment. A commitment to wipe out the surrounding nations. And this people, this strong generation, this blessed generation, committed an important sin of omission here. Omitting to do the one very important thing that God asked of them. To purge the evil. To purge the evil from them. And they didn't do it. And it cost them. 
Their partial obedience was complete disobedience in God's economy. And he's rebuking them for it. Their sin of omission eventually led to all-out disobedience in the next generation. A complete disregard for God. See, I think Israel took it for granted that the next generation would simply believe. And yet we see in chapter 2 that this wasn't the case at all. It's so sad to see that in just one generation, Israel went from the best of times to the worst of times. In one generation. As we see in the passage following the rebuke of the angel of the Lord, it's interesting that the people wept and sacrificed and went home. Because a lot of times that's the way tears and weeping and sacrifice go. We go home unchanged. Because their tears and sacrificing in this case didn't bring about change. It didn't yield obedience. The author says in chapter 2 verse 10. Chapter 2 verse 10. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done for Israel. Man what an indictment right here. What an indictment. You know, to get specific, what an indictment on the fathers. Because if there was one thing that God charged them to do, one thing that God was always putting before them, it was this issue of teaching the children. Reminding them of all that the Lord had done. The most important passage in Scripture to an Israelite father would have been what? Deuteronomy 6, commonly called the Shema Yisrael, Every, everyone knew it by heart. They knew it well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Diligently. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers. And I'm going to skip over to verse 12. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. And here we see a people. Who have forgotten the Lord. And as I see this. I have great concern for Grace Fellowship. Because we are a strong generation. But will the next generation know? Will we tell them? Will we train them to know the Lord, to know the ways of the Lord, to know His mighty works? Or will we sit back passively?
May his words be on our heart. May we be a people who do not forsake teaching our children who God is. We're not just talking about Bible studies. We should be doing devotions with our children and our family. We should be leading them in that way. But I'm talking about training in righteousness. Actively pursuing a biblical worldview with our family. Life on life. Discipleship and training. Teaching how to apply the Bible in everyday life. In instances. Real, hands-on, tangible, dirty, muddy, yucky Christianity. Raw. Life on life. Making the gospel real in our families. Because you know that's what's going to penetrate to the hearts of our children. More than a daily Bible study. Because we have to do that and we have to get through it. But the problem is, is most of us don't even do the bare minimum. Oh God, help us. Lord, make us a people who desire for the next generation to know Him. Lord, give us that kind of love, right? And as we see in Judges 2.11, not teaching our children is actually bringing destruction on them. We usually don't think of it in in these terms. Look what happens in 2.11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. It's getting worse. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So not teaching the next generation is a big deal. It's actually inviting destruction for them. As John Piper said, I love a quote that he That he had. Fathers do not have the right to teach children nothing all the while waiting for regeneration to happen. The scripture says, teach your children. Now for the best part. God saves his people. Thank God he didn't leave Israel in in that state of distress. He saved his people. Verse 16 of chapter 2 says that the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, if you'll turn over and look at chapter 3, verse 9, you're going to see a striking resemblance between the work of Othniel, Israel's first judge, 
in Jesus Christ. The author says this in chapter 3, verse 9. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. Well, I hope you're making the connection here. The connection between their judge and ours. As God raised judges on behalf of physical Israel to save them, so God has raised a judge on our behalf, spiritual Israel, to save us. Paul says in Romans that Jesus Christ was delivered for our sin and raised up for our justification. And in the way that Israel was to drive out the inhabitants of the land, Jesus Christ came to drive out Satan, to take away his dominion, his ability to deceive the nations, to blind them to the gospel. He came to earth to set people free from sin and death. See, we get this wrong. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And he came to earth bringing his kingdom with him. And he has bound the strong man. And now he extends freedom. Freedom to the captives. He extends his freedom to you. Freedom from sin and death. In the gospel, calling you to life in him. Calling you to be washed clean. To be forgiven of your sin. To be made whole. Thank God for raising up Christ on our behalf. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us Jesus Christ in your word today. Our only hope of salvation.